As we all know, television and film predominantly portray people with schizophrenia as young, white men. And yet, in real life, schizophrenia is not as seen on television, especially for women. Men typically show symptoms of schizophrenia at a younger age during their late teens or early 20s. But some women with schizophrenia don't develop the disease until later on in life, sometimes not being diagnosed until their 40s. And while a lot more needs to be done around women and serious mental illnesses, scientists are still seeing how illnesses like schizophrenia can impact men and women differently. So what does this mean? Does this affect women getting an accurate diagnosis or accessing care? And what about the additional stigma or discrimination that women may face? We are going to cover all of these questions and much more with today's guest, Dr. Araba Shinto. Dr. Shinto is an assistant professor at the University of Toronto in the psychiatry department. She's also a researcher and clinician with a particular interest in treatment-resistant schizophrenia and looking at the gender differences when it comes to diagnosing and treating mental illnesses. Dr. Shinto, thank you for joining us today. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to it as well. Dr. Shinto, research has shown that psychosis affects men and women equally and occurs across all cultures and all socioeconomic groups. But as we just talked about, illnesses like schizophrenia seems to affect women at a later age than men. Why do you think that is? The general feeling is that there's a protective effect of estrogen that impacts women after puberty differently to men. The peak that we see in men for their first episode of psychosis is in that kind of 18 to 24 year range. And for women, it's about four to six years later. So women will become ill in their first episode, 22 to 28, 30 years old. So it's meant to be a protective effect of the estrogens. And so with this protective effect of estrogen, I'm curious then, what are your thoughts on taking estrogen replacement and compensating for that decreasing estrogen? I'm glad you asked. My thoughts are, I want it to be the answer. <laughs> and the reality is there is some evidence that shows, okay, maybe we can use these selective estrogen receptor modulator CERM, S-E-R-M, CERMs for short. There's some evidence to show in some studies there's a bit of a change around symptoms and in others there aren't. So if I summarize, we don't have enough yet to say every single woman who has schizophrenia, when you get older and you're hitting menopause and you're losing estrogens plus some other hormones, let's give you these. But is it a place to look where the light is kind of bright? Yeah, definitely. And now, Dr. Shinto, I'd like to take a moment to listen to a clip. We are going to be hearing from a woman talking about her evolving mental health diagnosis since 1995. When I first had depression in 95, and my doctor just was like, you're just depressed, you just need antidepressants, just saying you're in a mood kind of thing. Not being heard and not being really looked at in a holistic type of, let's look at all the factors here, not just the depression. You can't just treat it singularly. You, you have to treat it and look at the whole picture, like what's the past trauma? What's the current trauma? What's the routine in this person's life? What's their support system like? Or what are they self-medicating with? And all those things, because I don't think you can just throw a pill at someone and say, take this and you'll be fine. Call me in a week. That's ridiculous. And, and that's what I felt that the doctor that I saw 
in Calgary. He missed the boat entirely, and then my life unraveled. So based on your experience as a clinician and a researcher, what are your thoughts on what we just heard? Do you think gender does play a role in getting a diagnosis for a mental illness? 100% it does for a number of reasons. Our women tend to present in atypical ways early on. I don't mean fantastical, but women will talk about emotions or impacts in relationships in a very different way than that kind of concrete, I just heard a voice or I think it's a CIA following me or that kind of thing. And so it's almost natural to lead towards this kind of mood picture or mood diagnosis. And part of the piece that we spoke about around our women coming to the illness later in life. And even if it's just four years later, if you think about yourself at 18 and you think about yourself at 22, for many people, they've gone through some post-secondary education or even have just worked and been out in the world more. And there's a real key piece around what you learn in those transitional forming, self-identifying years that help with self-preservation. And so if a woman comes and complains of things that sound interpersonal, that sound kind of mood related, and they're functioning much better than the average 18-year-old who just drops off and is hearing voices, then I think those are some of the reasons why that kind of misdiagnosis happens. So Dr. Shinto, what is the fallout from that kind of experience? The negative pieces to that are those stigma pieces. Oh, she's just, she's being melodramatic. Oh, she's hysterical. Oh, that kind of thing. I definitely think that that happens. And I think it's really easy to feel and think that. Work in a hospital and emergency department. And when we see people returning with similar complaints, but not really great functional part, like, well, you know, what am I meant to do? Oh, it's very, very easy to think, oh, they're just being melodramatic. And so that really impacts women. And the piece around that clip that hit me was that this woman talked about her life unraveling after that. Part of the problem about not getting that diagnosis right at the get-go is what we call duration of untreated psychosis. What does this mean? And what's the impact of having untreated psychosis? The longer period of time that you have this psychosis and it's not being treated, it has a really negative impact on your outcomes, on what you can do, on how you can recover, on what you can achieve later on in your life. And there's all different kinds of reasons that you may go with a, a longer duration of untreated psychosis, but we know that the impact is negative. And my only other caveat to that is that sometimes the diagnosis isn't clear up front. And it's not, I mean, I love schizophrenia. This is my jam and these are my people, but it's not a small thing to make a diagnosis of schizophrenia. And so in as much as I hear her almost desperately needing to have known what that was at the outset, sometimes the picture isn't clear. And to move down that route and to move down that medication piece and some of those other things, and even the stigma that is attached to schizophrenia, it's not a small thing. And so I say this to families all the time, something's definitely wrong and I don't know what it is. And I'm going to stand by you and you get to come through here for as long as it takes to figure it out. But right now we don't know. As we mentioned earlier, Dr. Shinto, you have a particular interest in treatment-resistant schizophrenia. So first off, what is that? Here in particular, in Canada, this categorization is for someone who has tried 
and not responded to at least two antipsychotic medications. So say, for instance, you, Phaedra, develop the symptoms of this illness, we start you on a medication, we get you up to a good dose, you're on it for a good enough chunk of time where we know that if this medication were going to work, it would be working by now, you still have the symptoms, you're still in distress, you're still bothered by it, fine. We switch to another medication, we get you up to that good dose, we have you on it for a good enough chunk of time where we know that if your symptoms were going to respond, then they would have responded by now and you're still in distress and you're still not well. Then we categorize you into what we call treatment-resistant schizophrenia. That little explanation was important because there's a next medication that we use. And if they move straight to clozapine, then they will tell you the changes that that makes. But many of them will tell you, well, no, I tried this and then 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 this. And so that's one of the research pieces for me. But the other research piece for me is around what that recovery looks like for people. I always say psychiatry is the unwanted stepchild of medicine and schizophrenia is the unwanted stepchild of psychiatry. This is just a marginalized group of individuals and the ones who don't respond to treatment who have ongoing challenges, whose illness impacts all those areas of their life. That's where I found myself, both advocating for and trying to understand and seeing if there are ways that I can use my skill set to change the trajectory of their illness. Thank you for that explanation. And when it does come to the differences between men and women, what are the differences in the outcomes of treatment-resistant schizophrenia? The short answer is we don't know. That's the short and scientific answer. And so I work with a few gurus in the schizophrenia area. And when I started to develop this interest and move my energies more into the area of women with severe and persistent mental illness. And then we would sit down and talk about just our general questions that we ask in treatment-resistant schizophrenia. The number of occasions where my mentor said to me, I actually don't know what that difference, what that looks like in men between women. I don't know actually what those outcomes are for clozapine between men and women. I'm not actually sure what that dose range looks like or what that side effect profile looks like. So there was a lot we don't know, which on the one hand is quite disappointing, but for someone like me who's a researcher to launch of her career, it's very exciting. I'm forming a nice scaffold of questions to ask and answers to hopefully be able to provide people. So the woman we heard earlier talked about her life unraveling Based on your experience as a clinician, what is the impact of having untreated psychosis? Traditionally, we feel like women with schizophrenia do better. There's a number of papers that women tend to do better with all different types of treatments. And at the outset, they look a bit better. They are a bit more functional for some of those reasons that we spoke about. But what we're starting to realize now is that when you look later on in the first one, two, three years, sure, women look better. But five, 10, 15 years, our women with schizophrenia actually don't do well. I can't help but wonder, is it the role of estrogen why there is a delayed diagnosis for women and potential outcomes? Or do you think it's some societal views of females. Oh, can I choose both? 
because I'd like to choose both. So in terms of the illness unveiling itself and the time that it does, right now, the richest place to look for that answer, and we're focusing on estrogen here. Estrogen comes in a basket of other hormones, but estrogen is the key one. And I harp on that for a reason, because we know the childhood psychosis or very young psychosis is a very small group, but we don't see a difference in age difference there. So that helps us realize that maybe there is this effect of estrogen when it starts to come. And it's not even just sustained estrogen, because as we know, as women, our cycles and the way that the hormones come is pulsatile. And so it's not just a blanket, just take your estrogen pill or your estrogen cream forever and you'll be okay. Because what happens endogenously within our bodies is pulsatile. So yes, I think there is something there around that protective effect of estrogen before the brains that are vulnerable to schizophrenia development. But what about the societal piece, including the views towards women overall? This societal piece, it's both good and bad. And so we spoke a bit about the stigma, the ways in which this is just you being melodramatic. And so you don't get this diagnosis of schizophrenia. You're probably just a drama queen. But also, and this is key for women, and I feel it particularly as a racialized woman as well, we don't stop. We have families, we have work, we have partners, we have aging parents. We don't stop. We put the needs of other people before us and we get it done. We could be bleeding on the streets and we still get it done. We still make the dinner for the children. We're still there for our aging parents. We're going to this and we're doing that. And so some of that delay in developing the illness allows women to get to a place where they then have those commitments and relationships. And I see this all the time. I have older women coming in to the clinic or into the emergency department and them saying, oh, well, they're like this. They say, well, they were always a bit weird or bizarre. Or they always had some of those thoughts where the women will say, yeah, no, no, I've always had those voices or whatever. And somehow, now that the kids have left the house, now that I'm divorced, now that my parents have passed, then it takes over. Then they stop. And so that stigma and that societal pressure and expectation and that role that women fill in society, it is profound and it all, I think, impacts the timing of when the illness really overcomes people. You're listening to Look Again, Mental Illness Reexamined, a podcast brought to you by the BC Schizophrenia Society and BC Partner Organizations. I'm your host, Phaedra Aldridge. This podcast would not be possible without the support of the community. From the bottom of our hearts, we want to thank you for caring about serious mental illness and everything that's around it. Together, we truly can make a difference. Welcome back to Look Again, Mental Illness Reexamined. I'm Phaedra Aldridge, and I've been speaking to Dr. Shinto about the differences, similarities, and the issues women face when diagnosed with a serious mental illness like schizophrenia. So, Dr. Shinto, I've read in the 1970s and the 1980s, women were left out or underrepresented in many clinical trials of psychiatric drugs. And that a lack of inclusion in these studies has made obviously prescribing the correct doses for drugs just that much more difficult and may put many women at greater risk for negative side effects. So there was a lot to unpack there. As I mentioned, I've done a number of years of post-secondary education. I wrapped up my PhD in 2008 before I went off to medical school. 
And the entirety of the work that I did in my PhD was based only on male rats because specifically we didn't want the complications of the estrus cycle. So the 70s and the 80s are not that far in the past, but 2008 and my lifetime is also not that far in the past. And I share that story because I think for people who don't know science, that is real. We like to be simple. We like to get quick and easy answers. We don't want to complicate things. That's how we do things in science. The conversation now is around systemic racism. And for me, it goes a little bit further than that. Like, God, like the ways in which the system was built for us to create science. And I just believed it and bought it and organized my research such that I wouldn't. Like, I am a woman, 50% of the people, you know what I mean? And it didn't even question it at that time. So what's my response to that? Oh, yeah. (laughs) And now that I am growing, I am progressing, I am seeing people, I am in a position where I can now question what is. Because that's really it. We're 2022 now, but this past few years have really helped me understand is that you now get to question all of what is. And I just love your energy and I can feel your enthusiasm coming in the microphone. So what is the answer, Dr. Shinto? What can we do to make a change so we no longer just have male rats in our clinical trials so we can view women differently and realize that there are differences between men and women when it comes to negative side effects of drugs, when it comes to prescribing the correct doses. Well, I know what I'm doing. (laughs) I am building a research program that looks at all of these life stages of women, specifically in severe and persistent mental illness, because that's where my heart lies. So I can understand exactly that. So when you come to me, Adrian, and you say, I am a 30-something or a 50-something or a 70-something woman, and this is my experience, I can now say, okay, well, you know what? This is what we see are the patterns in women of your age with your experience. Because right now, what I say is, this is what I see in the patterns of this illness broadly. And I know that that research is based largely, solely on men. I want to be able to fine tune the care that I can give to you and others based on your personal features. You know, we talk a lot about personalized healthcare and this for me is the piece. The other piece, and this is the piece that I don't know that I can fix, but I hold so dearly, is that I don't want to say our system is broken because then it just makes it seem like I'm poo-pooing everything, but our system is broken. We need to catch our women at stage one. So when women say, actually, I think I might be a bit off, let's get them in then and let's cut it off at the past so we don't end up with severe and persistent mental illness if we don't have to. What are the things that we can do early on? In the same way, if we screen early, then we don't end up with kind of stage four cancers. What we do and how our system is set up is only for the sickest of the sick. And in some ways, sure, because I am a psychiatrist, I am a specialist, my service should be reserved for the sickest of the sick. And still, there is nothing else to catch everyone else. And so when you ask, what can we do to change We need to change the system. And if it takes the plight of women for people to look at the system differently and say, it's not just working because people can't get care. It's not working because it's based on a model that isn't fit for care. That's what we can do. 
Absolutely. So as a clinician and a researcher, what do you think we can do to get people early on in the beginning stages of their journey? This is my question. This is what I'm trying to build right now is to understand what are the pieces and my history is psychopharmacology. Like I love drugs. I love the brain. I love how it impacts behavior. And that for me was my answer. You got a problem. I got the medication for you. And as I work more and more with people, I realize this is much, much broader than that. And our medications, while they are the cornerstone of our treatment, are also limited. And so that's exactly what I'm trying to figure out right now is what are the pieces? So if you, Phaedra, are now, I don't know, 18, 12, 16, coming into me and you know your parent or your caregiver or your sibling says something's not quite right. What are the pieces that I need to glean out of your history that make me say, actually, you know what? This is probably going to be okay. Let's just watch and see or let's keep a closer eye on this woman or hey, let's intervene right now. And what are those interventions? That's exactly what I'm trying to build. So the short answer is I don't know, but I'm trying to find out. So based on your experience as a clinician, what role does trauma play for women versus men when it comes to diagnosing and treating a mental illness? That's a big one. And it's a big part of what we spoke about earlier, making it easy to dismiss a woman's concerns as melodrama or whatever. I don't know if your listeners will know about we kind of speak about in psychiatry, kind of the big T traumas versus the little T. So the big things would be child abuse, sexual abuse, overt neglect, but even smaller things, bullying, that kind of thing. But all of those traumas have an impact on women. And we know, at least in terms of what they report, our women with psychosis report those things more often. And yet, how well do we target our services to help explore and process and move past that trauma? I mean, I work in the largest mental health and addictions research and and clinical setting in Canada, and you come to me for your schizophrenia, and you go somewhere else for your trauma. And how am I not integrating that? I'm aware of it now, and so I spend some time with my patients, and yet our model isn't one that's always holistic to treat the person in front of us. And so, I mean, I guess it does answer your question, because I think that is important to recovery. I don't know that I can change the traumas that people have had, but I can definitely have a hand in helping them navigate it and come through, not to forget about it, not to pretend like it never happened, but to help them grow through it and understand the role it played in their lives and to help them move through it and hopefully past it. Now, you talked about the important role that medications play. Let's talk about the difference between men and women when it comes to responding to those medications. That's a great question. So some of the research will show you that women do better. And so the assumption is that they respond better to the medications. And there's some of the work that looks at that and ties it into that piece around the estrogen and the hormones. And that says maybe actually women do respond better. A piece of that has to do with the way some of our medications are in our body. And so women have more fat cells than men. The medications can accumulate in fat cells in men. And so it may look like women are responding better, but it could be that there's more of the medication hanging around in the women than men. But then there's that other piece around, actually, maybe women aren't responding better 
but are doing better. And that has to do, again, with all of those pieces, those societal pieces, those roles that women fill that force them to function despite their symptoms. And I'm going to end with a pretty big question. Dr. Shinto, what policy changes at a societal level do you think could make both diagnosing and treating women more equitable? So for me, it's around that piece about mental health being health. And it speaks a bit to those feelings that I have around the system being broken. Again, we didn't create our system in a way to give people the care that they need. And I realize to find a psychiatrist is very difficult. There are few of us and we are overrun. And does all of mental health care needs to be through psychiatrists? Are there ways that our policies can change to support other mental health practitioners? So it's not just those who can afford to pay for psychotherapy, social work interventions, that kind of thing, or you have to be completely downtrodden and on the streets before you get served. Is there a way that we can bridge those gaps? I would like to see policy changes that open our eyes to the types of care that people need and have the services and support the services to meet that. Dr. Shinto, I could talk to you for hours. You are obviously extremely passionate about what you do and truly making a difference. So thank you for everything that you do and for walking the journey with every single person that you see in their families that has a severe and persistent mental illness. Thank you. Well, I thank you and I thank them for helping me along my learning path. And a huge thank you to you, our audience, for joining us for this episode. Together, we can change the narrative around mental illnesses like schizophrenia and end the many myths and the stereotypes that we spoke about today. If you have any questions or any comments, tweet us at BC Schizophrenia. And to get our latest episodes, be sure to hit follow on Apple Podcasts Spotify, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. And here's another podcast you may be interested in. Fireweed is a podcast brought to you by the British Columbia Institute of Technology that explores stories of adaptability and resilience. And they're back for season two. Follow host Bianca Rego, who talks to experts and innovative thinkers who are reshaping their industries with new technologies, new thoughts, and new approaches. Listen to Fireweed wherever you get your podcasts. We hope you join us next episode. Talk to you soon. This podcast is brought to you by the BC Schizophrenia Society and the BC Partners for Mental Health and Substance Use Information. We're a group of nonprofit agencies providing good quality information to help individuals and families maintain or improve their mental well being. The BC Partners members are Anxiety Canada, BC Schizophrenia Society, Canadian Institute for Substance Use Research, Canadian Mental Health Association's BC Division, Family Smart, Jesse's Legacy, a North Shore Family Services Program, and Mood Disorders Association of BC, a branch of Lookout Housing and Health Society. The BC Partners are funded and stewarded by BC Mental Health and Substance Use Services, an agency of the Provincial Health Services Authority. For more information, visit heretohelp.bc.ca.